0: It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists.
1: Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, that's me, and with Dave Ansell. Hi Dave. Hi Chris. Now coming up, we'll be finding out how doctors have successfully treated a man with malignant melanoma, that's a kind of skin cancer, and they've done it by using just his own immune cells, but how? Also, how scientists have discovered that the key to the origin of life on Earth could well be coming from outer space, and also why climate change might come at a gallop not a crawl, because researchers have found signs that after the last ice age, an entire ocean's worth of ice
2: melted in just two years. And we'll be finding out how in just a second. Dave. Thanks, Chris. Also this week it's our science question and answer show in which we'll be taking a look at all your science questions. Coming up, is there a gas that has the opposite effect of helium on your voice? Why do wind turbines only have three blades? And how exactly does a mirror work? We'll be reflecting on that one later. Thanks, Dave.
1: And on the subject also of solving challenging problems, brace yourself for what amounts to a simply shocking question of the week.
3: Hi, I'm Becky from Bishop Stortford, and my question is, as lightning can strike in the same place twice, if you get struck by lightning and it stops your heart, and then they get struck by it again, would it restart
1: your heart? Well, you could say that's a stunning question, and the answer's equally electrifying. It's on the way. If you want to join in with this week's show, or you just want to say hi, we love hearing from you. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The
0: Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, this
1: week, very exciting, because malignant melanoma is currently the fastest growing cancer in terms of numbers in the world. In the Western world, that's Britain, countries like Australia and America, the rates have gone up over 100% in the last 10 years, and the survival rate is shocking. I think the five-year long-term survival rate for malignant melanoma is around about the 10% mark. So we really need something done about this and fast. And so this week I was very encouraged to see there's a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's been done by a researcher called Cassian Ye and his team. They're based at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in Seattle. And they tell the story of a 52-year-old man who came to see them with what amounted to a malignant melanoma that had already begun to spread around his body. So he already had cancer deposits in his lymph nodes, the glands, and the cancer had also invaded his lungs. And what they did in this man was to take some white blood cells from his circulation and then exposed those white blood cells to a marker, a chemical antigen, which is expressed on the surface of some of the cells in a malignant melanoma. This is a marker called NYESO1. And the cells were then also treated with some growth factors to make them begin to divide. And what they ended up with were about 5 billion CD4 T cells. These are a kind of lymphocyte, a white blood cell, which responded selectively to this chemical marker on the cancer. They then re-injected those cells back into the man, and two months later he was re-scanned with a CT scan and they could find no trace of the cancer anywhere in his body and the really interesting thing was that his immune system also seemed to develop the ability to attack other markers which were present on the cancer cells as well as just this NYESO1 marker because only about half of the cancer cells had that but the whole cancer went suggesting that the T cells were able to encourage the immune system to develop an ability to attack more than just one type of cell and then rid the entire body of the cancer
2: Or is this just a single result, or are they doing more research? Well, of
1: course, you have to be very careful how you interpret just a single result, because this is one patient so far using this approach. But at the same time, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel, because this shows you that you can do this. You can use someone's own immune system if you can reprogram it directly and appropriately to attack a cancer and get rid of it.
2: Okay. Now, one of the biggest um, questions for science is, how did life begin? Um, there's been all sorts of theories and one of them which has been around for 50 or 60 years is that space has given us a helping hand some scientists like fred hoyle even went as far as saying that life actually started out in space and it came down onto earth now there's been some research done which has um, given some ideas about this now um, both dna and rna uh, which are the basis of the replication of all living things are made of organic molecules called nuclear bases and proteins, which are all the building blocks of everything else, of, of all other bits of the living things, um, are made up of things called amino acids. Now, scientists have analysed some kinds of ancient meteorites called carbonaceous chondrites, um, of which they found small quantities of both nuclear bases and amino acids inside them. Where do, how old are these meteorites? Where do they come from? Um, they come from right back at the beginning of the solar system, so four, four and a half, five billion years ago. They're thought to be just what the material which is kicking around in the solar system, which is condensed. But that
1: basically gave rise to Earth in the first yeah.
2: Earth, the sun, and all, Earth, the Sun and all the planets, um, minus sort of the hydrogen helium, which is boiled off immediately. Now, the only problem is they found them in these meteorites, but they, don't actually, they didn't actually know whether they actually came from the meteorites because there's an awful lot of nuclear bases and proteins kicking around on Earth.
1: Oh, so, I see. So the theory would be, because these chemicals are in the meteorite, perhaps them landing on Earth is what then helped to kick-start life on Earth using the same chemistry. But the, the question is... Did it come from the meteorite or has it just got contaminated since it landed here with
2: things that were already on Earth since? Yeah, that's right. It's much easier to start life if you've got all the building blocks there already. You don't have to do as many unlikely things to make the first living thing appear in the first
1: place. So how have they proved that it Definitely did come from outer space, then.
2: Well, they've looked at the carbon inside these nuclear bases, um, and there's various different kinds of carbon of different um, different weights. There's carbon-12, carbon-13, carbon and one you may have heard of, which is carbon-14. Now, most of the carbon in the world is carbon-12 and carbon-13, so carbon-13 is a little bit heavier. It's got an extra neutron inside it. And normally, carbon-13 makes up about 1% of carbon on the Earth. Now, but they've looked very carefully at this um, meteorite and things inside this meteorite and found that it's actually 44% carbon-13. So it's incredibly unlikely this could have come from Earth. It's almost certainly coming down from space. um, And while it doesn't show that uh, that life came from space, it shows that, especially near the beginning of the um, solar system, Earth is going to be getting pelted by lots and lots of meteorites with lots of building blocks to make up life.
1: Around the same time as we know life got going here. Yeah,
2: that's right. The period when we know that life started is a period when the Earth was getting hammered by meteorites very heavily.
1: And one quick question, Dave. Why is the carbon-13 so rare here on Earth but so common in space in these meteorites then?
2: I'm not entirely
1: sure about that one, I'm afraid, Chris. Okay, so that's one bit of homework for you. Okay, well here's an interesting study which has been done here on Earth and although it does have sort of out of this world sort of implications because we're all very acquainted with how MRI works magnetic resonance imaging these are these incredibly high resolution scans that can see directly inside the body without actually having to pierce the skin you can see down at the level of individual structures inside the heart of your brain even inside of the heart of your heart but how does it actually work well you use magnetism to line up all of the water molecules in the body and in the strong magnetic field all the hydrogen in the water forms a straight line and then by firing a radio Radio frequency pulse into the water. you can knock some of these hydrogen atoms off kilter for a fraction of a second and they then flip back in line with the radio with the magnetic field again and they release some more radio waves that the scanner can see and It uses those signals to build up a profile of what the inside of the body works that 's how MRI actually works but wouldn 't it be nice if we could take it a step further and instead of having black and white pictures, we could actually have color images because you could, you could get additional information about the structures that you're looking at. And that's what Gary Zabo and his colleagues at NIH in Bethesda, Maryland, have done. They've come up with these tiny particles, which are between about a thousandth and a hundredth of a millimetre across. They look like a miniature dumbbell, the kind of thing you'd lift in the gym. They're two plates of gold-coated nickel separated by a non-magnetic, non-nickel spacer. So they look a bit like a hamburger, if you like, with a space in the middle. So where the burger would be, there's just a gap, and water can get in there. Now when you put these things into the scanner, the magnetic field of the scanner makes them line up with the magnetic field, but the magnetic field of the scanner also makes the nickel make its own magnetic field in the opposite direction. So you get a, a very different magnetic field in that space inside the particles. And because the particles can be different shapes and sizes, you can vary the magnetic field inside them, and this means that the water molecules inside will will respond to different frequencies of radio waves and then produce different frequencies of radio waves. And this means that you can get if you change the nature of these particles, you can get very different information coming back from the tissue because you could, for instance, attach some antibodies to these structures. So they only lock on to certain types of cell. And this will mean that you can then see at much higher resolution the structures that you're looking at inside different bits of the body. So an amazing breakthrough. Not quite ready to be injected into patients
2: yet, but probably not that far off. Um, have they done any research on whether it will be... Um happy inside your body and whether your body will do any bad things to it well these are
1: very small particles and at the moment there's evidence to suggest that they probably would be tolerated okay or at least the principle could be exploited to make them be okay inside the body but that's the next step at the moment they've just shown that it works the next step is to see if they can be made happy inside the body work inside the body and then be safe inside the body as well
2: Okay. Now, uh, the climate is an incredibly complicated system, which um, can take a long time to react to new inputs. And we're all very dependent on its vagaries. Um, So we can't really do experiments in order to understand how it works, because you get thousands of people dying of famine all over the place. Um, So we can't really fine-tune our models by doing experiments on it. So the only way we can study its behaviour is by looking at what's actually gone on in the past. Now, the North Greenland ice core project is giving us our best resolution view of climate for the last 15,000 years or so. This has involved drilling an ice core in northern Greenland. And then instead of what normally happens with ice cores, which they ship them back to a lab somewhere, in the rest of the, in somewhere else in the world, and then they look at the um, ice very carefully and see what's inside it. They've actually built a lab where they're drilling the ice core. And they've got an automated machine which will slowly melt the end of this ice core and then look at very carefully what's inside the ice. Um, And again, then they're looking at various different things. One of them, which is the ratio of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16. What does that actually mean? Um, Oxygen 18 is, again, another slightly heavier version of oxygen, so with two extra protons compared to the more normal oxygen 16. And because it's slightly heavier... Um, it will tend to form form ice slightly better, so it will form ice first. So um, if there's lots of oxygen eighteen, then it then you'll know that the um, ice formed in high temperatures. And if there's lots of oxygen sixteen, you'll know that the ice formed at low temperatures. All so the oxygen eighteen is already con- condensed out. Sure. And what's this showing them? Um, they've also looked at different types of hydrogen. So hydrogen two, otherwise known as deuterium, and hydrogen one, which tells you the te- uh, more hydrogen one evaporates at low temperatures and high temperatures. So it'll tell you the temperature of the water which it's evaporated from. Now, previous ice cores have showed that the temperature in Greenland has increased by about ten degrees centigrade in fifty years, but this ice score has showed that um, probably um, the Atlantic Ocean, which was originally frozen all the way down to Portugal, um, probably f- melted all the way up to Iceland in a period of only sort of one to three years. When was this? Around about fifteen, I think sort of 11,000, 15,000 years ago. So at the end of the last ice end age? end of the ice age, last ice age.
1: So dramatic. Why do they think that suddenly a whole ice sheet, half an ocean, could just recede in the space of such a short time?
2: Um, they think it may be something to do with... Um, water flows inside the atlantic and all of a sudden the basically gulf stream turning on and pumping huge amounts of heat into the atlantic and melting it so Um, we should be wary about
1: this because although we we tend to think of us having plenty of time to deal with the concept of of climate change and the consequences of it this suggests that in fact the climate and the whole of the earth's environment can change very rapidly
2: yeah it may stay stable for a very long time but all of a sudden it could just flip
1: let's hope it doesn't thanks dave now Do you ever eat at your desk at work? Because also in the news this week is the question of how safe computer keyboards are and whether they may or may not be loitering, have lots of bacteria loitering on them. Well, the fact is that in the health service we're using more and more computers all the time and doctors often have to use them between seeing different patients and the prospects of them actually washing the keyboards off properly, well, that's open to doubt. And... That could actually be due to change now, because Dr Peter Wilson, he's from University College London Hospital, has taken steps to try and make computers in his in uh, his hospital a lot safer. Peter, hello, thank you for joining us. Hello, hi. So, are, why are computer keyboards a threat in hospital? What's the, what's the evidence that they are?
4: Well, we've known for a while that uh, all sorts of bugs can grow from computer keyboards, and we did a study, and others have done, done studies, Uh, where we find up to 25% of them have superbugs like MRSA. Um, Now, they've got there because a nurse will do observations on the patient and then go and put the observations into the computer. She won't wash her hands between touching the computer and touching the patient. A doctor will then come along, touch the keyboard, not necessarily touching the patient, so he won't wash his hands either and then he'll go on to the next keyboard. So any bugs that have been brought from patient to keyboard will then go to next keyboard and then to next patient. And in fact, we could see when we did our study that certain strains of MRSA were, um, in effect, going around the ward.
1: And what proportion of the keyboards were infected with bugs?
4: Well, up up to 25% have MRSA, but it's not just that. There's three or four other superbugs which... Uh, Small numbers of these organisms sit on the keyboards. Uh, The problem is nobody ever cleans a keyboard, or if they do, it's very rare. And what proportion of keyboards do actually get cleaned? Well, when we we audited it, we found only 6% of them got cleaned, and these were ones that already had plastic covers on them to try and make it easier to clean. If you just have an ordinary keyboard... As you'll know yourself, it's very difficult to clean between the keys and get all the debris out from between. So it's a real problem.
1: So what have you done to to overcome the problem?
4: Well, we knew we were going to have uh, electronic patient records. So it was supposed to be a paperless hospital and we were moving into a new hospital in 2005 in the Euston Road. So what we did was we had a look at what was on the market and there were a few washable keyboards around but they required you to wash them under a tap and blow blow them with a hairdryer. Um, But nobody was going to do that. So uh, we then went to four companies, gave them a very detailed specification of what we wanted, and, and an American one came back with one that was pretty close. And what it is really that the keyboard is completely flat. It's absolutely flat there's an optical illusion printed on it which makes it look as if it's got ordinary keys. And the reason it's flat is that you can take an alcohol wipe or a detergent wipe, just go across it once in literally about four seconds and completely clean it and sterilize it. Um, In addition to that, uh, what we put in was an alarm so that if you haven't cleaned it for 12 hours, it starts flashing irritatingly at you. Um, And you can only turn the flashing light off if you take an alcohol wipe and go across the whole surface.
1: But in some places where computers are getting very heavy use, then 12 hours might still be too infrequent, wouldn't it?
4: Oh yes, Um, and you can reduce the interval to three hours. We have it set at three hours in our intensive care unit. If you do that, you reduce the bug counts on the surface of these keyboards by 70% compared to ordinary keyboards.
1: And extrapolating that, what sort of impact do you see this having in terms of hospital-acquired infections?
4: Well, of course, that's very difficult to say. We know know that most hospital-acquired infections are spread on people's hands. And we know that a lot of it is direct from patient to patient. But probably around about a third is from patient to somewhere in the local environment, then picked up by somebody else back to a patient. So it might have an effect on about a third of the transmission of hospital infection. Very difficult to prove though, but um, as you just make an investment in these keyboards and they last for four years, it would only have to have a four or five percent effect on the overall level of infection to pay for itself.
1: Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. That's Peter Wilson from University College London Hospital explaining how his easy-to-use keyboards can reduce hospital-acquired infections. And they've actually just ordered the NHS, that is, 7,000 of them, and I've used one, and they're not too bad to type on either. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Dave Ansell. We're taking your science questions and trying to answer them for you, so if you have any questions for us, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Connor's in Tillingham. Hi, Connor. Oh, hello. What would you like to know?
5: Uh, yes, I'd like to know, actually, uh, uh, what's happening at a molecular level when a mirror is reflecting light? I've looked up some articles, but it doesn't explain what exactly is happening.
2: OK, one way of looking at it is that uh, most mirrors are made out of something which conducts, like a metal and so when the um a light is called an electromagnetic wave um that means that it has a electric field which is oscillating vibrating and so when this um Light hits this metal, because an electric field will mean that the electrons, which are free to move inside a metal, will start to r- vibrate backwards and forwards. Now, if a- electrons are moving backwards and forwards, um, this means an electron which moves backwards and forwards will basically create a vibrating magnetic field. Um, and that's how you create light in the first place, how you create another electromagnetic wave and the way in which they're moving by the light hitting the um, metal will cause light to be emitted um, just in the opposite direction, so it will reflect off in the way you'd expect for light to reflect off a mirror. So basically light light comes in, causes electrons to move, which then re-radiate the light out again as the reflected light coming off again.
5: Oh, I see. Could I pick you up on something uh, you, you may have said a couple of weeks ago, which I didn't understand about light, Okay. Yeah, um, um, I think we just said that um, it would take a photon about a million years to pass from the centre of the sun outwards, but I thought the speed of light was constant.
1: Yes, th- there's a reason for, for saying that, um, Connor, and the reason is that, and in fact Brian Fulton, who's professor of astrophysics at York, told me that, so I know mm-hmm. it's right. Um, the reason is that the sun is so dense because it's, it's such a huge body with so much pressure mm-hmm. in the middle that the photon effectively behaves a bit like a gigantic game of pinball and the photon gets banded around all over the place and finds it very difficult to escape so if you extrapolate back to the reaction the fusion reaction four hydrogen atoms fusing together to make one helium and some energy the energy that came out was probably made at least a million years ago to make that photon and it's just taken that long to filter its way to the surface so if you took it to its logical conclusion if the sun suddenly stopped all activity now you'd still probably have a million years worth of light locked away inside
5: oh that's fantastic thanks it, very it much it is very
1: reassuring if you're going to live a million years
5: thanks very much <laughs> a great program by the way because we Connor. have some more questions and answers Okay, doke we'll do our best. Very much. Bye.
1: thank you Tis the Naked Scientist for Chris Smith and Dave Answer. we've had a, quite a flurry from our listeners in Second Life hello to all of you Dagger Chok says I've just cleaned my keyboard with an antibacterial wipe as it sounds so disgusting so did Jem Rayner who said I think I'm going to clean my keyboard after this and Edsel Heinkel suggests wouldn't it be easier to sterilise keyboards by shining ultraviolet light on it well I suppose it would but it wouldn't necessarily be very good for the staff would it? Got an email here from Klaus who is listening in Germany, he says best podcast I know, please keep going so thanks for that Klaus, and now it's time for a bit of interactive fun it's what we do every week,
2: it's Kitchen Science, Dave what are we doing this week? Well this week we've got a bit of a challenge for you, what I want you to do is get hold of a balloon, blow it up (laughs) so we've got a nicely inflated balloon, and then I want you to get a skewer and you think you well, want a kebab stick or something Yeah, a kebab stick, um, skewer, something long sharp, long and pointy and put it through the balloon without making the balloon pop That doesn't sound possible Yeah, I mean if I take a, a skewer like this one and put it into the balloon it explodes Yeah, our microphone just exploded <laughs> uh, Yeah, so is, is, how, how are you supposed to get around that then? There's a couple of different ways I want people at home to have a go at this and try and work so out it is, where possible. it is possible there's at least two ways i know of to do it and we'd have a go at home have a go, go at it see if you can get a skewer through a balloon without making it go pop
1: and then tell us what the science is behind the solution you come up with indeed so if you think you can solve dave's kebab stick challenge the email address is chris at Scientists.com. laying the facts bare the naked scientists This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. One exciting thing we do here on the programme each week is we also beam the Naked Scientists live into Second Life on the internet. And confusingly, Second Life time is different to the time of the normal UK time. So although it's Sunday, 6 o'clock onwards here in the UK, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, Second Life time. But if you'd like to join in on Second Life, and you can sit down on one of our sun loungers and enjoy the programme alongside our other listeners who are there, hello to all of you, we're watching you. Uh, Troy McLuhan, interestingly, Dave, says he has very highly inflated expectations for your kitchen science today. Uh, you go to Second Life and you go to the lands S. C. I L A N D S, and you look for the Naked Scientists, you go to our mansion and you can sit there and listen to the programme and alongside all of the other people from all over the place who are there. So you can meet people from around the world and have a chat to them.
2: Dave. Okay, I've got a question here for you, Chris, from Jeff, who's in Australia. He says he's got two young daughters aged six and eight and they're losing their baby teeth. And he's wondered why the teeth that fall out don't have any roots, because surely teeth have roots. Where are they going? Baby
1: teeth definitely do have roots and I have a, a painful personal experience to recount on this front. When I was about 14, my dentist decided that I had too many of my milk teeth left and decided they needed pulling out. And he pulled them out and it was terrifically painful because they all had very long roots. But the ones that had fallen out didn't have any roots. And the reason is that when you have secondary dentition, your adult teeth, they come up underneath where your baby teeth are, and they erode the root away. So this loosens the tooth and makes it fall out, but only once there's a secondary tooth to come through in its place because evolutionarily speaking it wouldn't do to have a period with no teeth if all your teeth could just fall out and you had nothing to replace them with you might starve if you were back in ancient history didn't have the welfare state to look after you and pot noodles or something so that's why you have this sort of dissolving of the root in order that the tooth can then be replaced by the secondary dentition so what he's seeing is is nature in action i suppose well this one's good uh this one is also from australia actually jeff blackwell says um, and he's from he's in queensland he's emailed me to say is there a gas that
2: can do the opposite
1: of helium to the voice
2: yes there is there are various gases um oh, no, i
1: presume he's talking about when you go squeaky and, and i won't do an impression because it's embarrassing
2: <laughs> yeah indeed okay um helium does strange things to your voice because it's much less denser than air in your throat is acting a bit like a musical instrument, and you get sound waves vibrating backwards and forwards, up and down above your vocal cords, and that gives the kind of rich and the timbre to your voice, which is the timbre to your voice. Um, and it sort of picks which frequencies of your voice to amplify. Now, helium um, is a much lower, freq- a lo- lower density gas than air, and that means that sound travels much faster in it. So, the, um, so your throat will then vibrate at much higher frequencies. It will um, amplify the sounds at much higher frequencies so that's helium, what so about helium.
1: reversing that
2: effect so to reverse the effect you need a much denser gas than air so there are a couple of good ones xenon would work beautifully which is a noble gas and very safe comes out of radio uh, nuclear reactors doesn't it probably yeah um, and that wouldn't react with anything um, another good one which I know that people use is sulphur hexafluoride both of these are much denser than air so, you get a mu- so you'll amplify the much deeper sounds in your voice
1: do you want to know the suggestion from Edsel Heinkel in Second Life
2: He says cigar smoke is the gas to solve that problem. (laughs) It's a slightly (laughs) different effect. Now I've got a question here from Andy Steed. Um, He was wondering how the bacteria infecting your body know where they are in his body because he knows that things like cholera will go to your guts and infect your guts. How do they know how to get there?
1: It's all because bacteria have what's called a tropism. They're set up or they are specialised in order to survive in certain environments they might have for instance molecular grappling hooks which are called pili and these are the bacterial equivalent of velcro that enables them to stick on to certain tissues because different tissues in our bodies have different chemical environments so if you look at say your bladder and the, u- and the urethra People get urine infections because specialised forms of E. coli, called uropathic E. coli, can stick onto the wall of the bladder and also onto the urethra. And your body tries to prevent them doing that by having this sort of anatomical Teflon in the form of very slippery cells. But the E. coli have very strong Velcro, which enables them to stick. Other bacteria would just be washed away. In the, in the bloodstream for example there are some bacteria that can cling on to heart valves and they can do that because they've developed an ability to recognise the surface of the heart valve stick on and then they secrete this thing called a biofilm which is a protective layer that stops the immune system getting at them. So it's not so much that they know where to home, it's more that by chance they find themselves in the right place and they have the ability to stick on and make a home there. And so different bacteria just thrive in different environments because they're specialised to exist in those particular places. And there's just so many of
2: them washing around that some of them will inevitably get to the place where they want to be.
1: Yeah, if the immune system unfortunately lets them slip through the net. Very quickly, Dave, this is an interesting one from Eddie Cunningham and it's uh, one of those things that you just take for granted and never really question why. He says, why do wind turbines only have three blades?
2: Not all wind turbines do have three blades. I've seen some in Spain which have four um, and some older ones only have two. And some uh, old-fashioned windmills had up to six or eight. Um, But three seems to be the optimum for wind turbines. There's a few reasons behind that. One of them is that if you have too many blades in a wind turbine, each blade, as it moves through the air, it leaves it behind it a vortex. This is very like, if you ever looked at a plane taking off, you can sometimes see swirling air behind the two wings of the plane. And wind turbine blades are very like a plane's wing, and so you get a swirl left behind the thing, and if, behind the moving blade, and if those interfere with one another, then that can cause big problems.
1: I so said that's similar with a boat propeller, only having three blades. If you had more blades, you'd think you'd move more water, but actually it would become self demolishing in terms of the benefit so
2: that's the optimum choice between weight and materials and efficiency yeah and there's some other things like um you don't want if you have only two blades because the wind's moving faster higher up and lower down then it tends to um if the blade's pointing upwards it kind of puts a big twisting force on the bearings and it does damage the bearings compared to when it's horizontal you can actually steer
1: a boat that way interestingly because with with Big boat propellers, really big boat propellers. The water is denser at the bottom of the propeller than it is at the top, which means the propeller, as it turns round, is creating more of a push to the side at the bottom of its run than at the top. And if you know which way your propeller rotates, by giving the engine a really big burst of power you can enable it to do what's called prop walking and it gives you an extra kick in one direction which can make manoeuvring really, really helpful and really, really easy and that's how these really clever people get their boats into these unfeasibly small spaces just because they've learned that, that they can use that trick to get some extra move in, in one particular direction. Useful for boats, kind of damaging <laughs> for wind turbines though. <laughs> Thanks, David. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. We're as- asking and answering lots of science questions this evening and if you'd like to join us, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com.
0: Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.
1: Well, now it's time to find out about the latest developments in the world of technology, which we do every month with Mira Senthalingam and our resident tech expert, Chris Valence, And Mira went to find out about the more modern equivalent of map making.
3: In this modern age of GPS and route finders, many of us no longer feel the need to own or even look at a map. But there's more to a map than meets the eye, and we could be missing out on an important skill. So I'm in London once again with Chris Valence, who's going to tell me all about the wide range of information a map can provide. Hello, Chris. How are you?
0: I'm fine, thanks. A bit tired, uh, just back from Chicago, where I was looking at... uh... Hyperlocal news.
3: What is that?
0: It's a bit of a renaissance for maps, really, because of the social tools that are now available, things like Google Maps. You've got mapping functionality built into services like Yahoo Pipes. It becomes very easy to mix up data and geography.
3: How can this relate to news?
0: Within news, there's this movement for hyper-local news. In other words, overlaying information onto maps that you can search down to the postcode or block level. In fact, I've been meeting with a group of people in Chicago who run every block which does just that. You get all kinds of information about your neighbourhood on a map, in a very granular, very detailed fashion, everything from, you know, who's been burglarized, mugged, school performances, and local newspaper reports relevant to that specific area. Now, when it comes to mashing up this kind of data with geography, we can do a little bit of flag-waving, because the early days of using geographic data to present information to make a case one of the pioneers was a British physician, a chap called John Snow and a very important figure in the history of epidemiology and his work centred around a cholera outbreak in London and in fact there is a, a, a monument to him in central London, it's a pump because he was able to trace back the source of a cholera outbreak back to a specific pump and part of the way he presented his case, he made his case that this was the source of. Of the outbreak was using mapping data. Now John Snow's story has been told by somebody who's involved in this hyper-local news movement, in the most cutting edge sort of modern kinds of mapping. That's a Stephen Johnson, and he's the author of a new book on Snow called The Ghost Map.
6: At its core, it's kind of a, a medical thriller in some ways. It's story of, you know, one of the most terrible outbreaks of cholera in the history of London. But crucially, there were two people living in the community, John Snow and Henry Whitehead, who set about to try and figure out where the cholera was, was coming from. The problem with cholera was that it was actually in the water. It was about contaminated water supplies. And so Snow and Whitehead together ended up building this map of all the deaths in Soho and London that pointed very vividly, when you looked at it on the page, to this central water pump. And what I think it's so interesting about this story is Snow and Whitehead were crucially locals. They were in the neighborhood. It was Whitehead's social network the fact that he knew so many of his neighbors that enabled him to contribute so much to the case. One of the things I love about the story is it's at the intersection point of all these things. It's a great study in mapping and information design, epidemiology, and cities, and how cities and communities and neighborhoods solve problems.
0: You look at John Snow's original maps and they're not so different from a Google map,
6: are they? That's right. It was the 1st mashup. He took some publicly accessible data from the kind of health records that showed who had lived and died, added his own data, the data that he and Whitehead had collected, took the street grid that was kind of publicly available, just not in digital form, and he layered data on top of that and built something that created a whole new kind of perception of what was happening in his community and ultimately what was happening in, in communities all around the world.
0: Did the map help to make the case?
6: Certainly. In fact, some people think that the map was how Snow got to the solution itself, that he drew the map and realized that cholera must be in the water because it's pointing at the pump. In fact, it was the other way around. He developed the theory on his own that the water was the problem, and he built the map more in a sense as a marketing device for his idea. You can see this in this map in a second. Of course, that's
0: in 1854. We're at least 154 years on from that. What are we doing that is utilizing the tools at our disposal?
6: there are two ways to think about it. The first is literally the idea of maps. I mean, this is the great renaissance of amateur map makers, um, thanks to the kind of open tools that folks like Google and Yahoo have given us to create our own vision of the geographic world around us. So we can take these maps and say, hey, I've created a map of all the pizza parlors that I love, or these are comments on local schools or crimes that have happened. But the other thing that's not just necessarily tied to maps is the flowering of local experts in communities all around the world who are using the connective power of the web to share their ideas about their real-world environments. So we've been developing this service outside.in, which is right now only available in the U.S., where we're trying to, in a sense, scrape the web for all the information that we can find that's relevant to places, to neighborhoods, to schools, to parks, to real estate developments. and. We've basically taken all that information and mapped it to geographic points so that you can come to it and say, OK, I'm standing on this street corner at this specific spot. Tell me what's happening within a 1,000 feet of me.
3: So that was Stephen Johnson, the author of The Ghost Map. But I guess with all this hyper-local mapping, is this going to replace the local newspaper?
0: The thing about a local newspaper is it gives you information on a city-wide, on a region-wide basis. It doesn't necessarily drill down to the individual street or the individual postcode, which is what hyperlocal news does. Now, they will link back to news articles that are based, you know, very much about a specific location, say, about a specific school that happens to be in a location. But uh, they're only linking back to the news. They're not really replacing it. So they really see it as complementary rather than in competition.
1: Miracent Senthilingam talking to Chris Valance about Hyperlocal News, which is the latest and newest online development where you can find out all the news that's going on about specific roads and even postcodes, and you can even build a modified map to show anything from the nearest school, for instance, to the nearest massage parlour, which would be good for you, Dave. Um, So it's quite remarkable to think that all of that effectively came out of the mapping techniques that were pioneered by a Victorian in London, that was John Snow, working out where a cholera epidemic came from. Now Dave, very quickly, um, John in Colchester has responded to your point about mirrors when you were talking to Connor from Tillingham, and he says, what would happen if you put a very strong magnet behind the mirror? Would this cause the light to go out of
2: focus? Um, I'm not sure that it would go out of focus but something it will definitely do is alter- affect the polarisation of the light now polarisation if you imagine light's a wave if you imagine a wave on a string between me and you Chris if I vibrate it up and down then that would be vertical polarised if I vibrate the string side to side that would be horizontally polarised now if you put a very strong magnet behind a on, on the back of the mirror then um, what magnets do to an electric current when the light, the light will hit the mirror cause an electric current to flow and what magnets do to an electric current is cause them to bend and move inside circles so because of the magnetic field when the light hits it, it will cause the electrons to bend around a corner slightly so i mean the reflection will have a slightly twisted polarization to the one which came in and you'll get funny colors um you could get slightly it'll affect different colors in different ways so, so if you, you looked at them. it with your sunglasses on you should see something a bit weird I'm not sure if it will affect the colour, it will certainly affect, I mean that it could But if you had some Polaroid sunglasses, angle. would you see. I think it's a very, very small effect.
1: It's just a few degrees. <laughs> well, we'll just have to try it. in a future edition of The Naked Scientist, Bob, is on the line and he joins us from Braintree. Hi, Bob. Hi. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What would you like Thank to talk you. about?
5: I was listening a couple of weeks ago about the brain controlled electronic limb systems and I was wondering if they would be of any benefit to cerebral palsy sufferers.
1: I think they probably would, Bob, because one of the problems that people with cerebral palsy have is very often a, a sort of locked-in syndrome where they have preserved intellect and have a very acute brain, but the problem is that it's translating the messages of what they want to do down to the bits of the body that can make those things happen, such as move the limbs or walk around, and that's where they have a problem. And the device that you're referring to is a piece of work that's been done by a researcher called Andrew Schwartz, and he's in America, and what he's done is to develop a system, a computer program, that can de- Decode the neurological chit chat that goes on in the brain's motor areas and work out what sort of a movement uh, at this stage a monkey, but a monkey's brain is very similar to how ours works, so it should work the same way. He can decode the chit chat between the nerve cells and get the monkeys to move a robot arm which enables them to feed themselves so very fine and accurate movements just by listening to what the brain's doing so I don't think there's any reason to doubt that it would be impossible to use something similar for people with cerebral palsy in other words there's every reason to think that it might just work yes I understand that is there anywhere that I can find out more about it Well, at the moment, Bob, no-one's actually doing this in humans, Um, although they are doing it in a very limited way. They're not actually doing it at the resolution that these people in America are. It's very experimental. But I think if you watch this space, because if we report on it, then we'll give you all the details. Okay. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Paul's in Buckingham. Hi, Paul.
5: Yeah, hello there. Um, Chris, question, obviously. Um, Colored objects... um, Red ones, blue ones, whatever. And for this purpose, we'll assume that light is waveform as opposed to particle energy. Traditional theory there is a doubt that a green object appears green because it reflects green light and absorbs other frequencies, red, likewise. What property does the substance have or the surface of it have to cause it to reflect certain wavelengths and conversely absorb
2: other please? Okay, the biggest effect is actually um, what colors something absorbs. Um, Now, different colors of light have different energies. So, the bluer, the bluer uh, light comes on in blobs, so they're called photons. The bluer the light is, the more energy that photon has. Because it's yeah. a high frequency, yeah. Right. Now atoms, the electrons inside atoms can only have certain energies, so that they have what are called energy levels. So um, they, maybe you could, so they can absorb a certain amount of energy, or twice that amount, or two and a half when times that amount. Back. The lower shell yeah yeah uh, they, they move up and down shells and between okay. orbitals and things and um, between energy levels and so right. basically an, a substance can only absorb light if it has a difference between two, an electron in an energy level and an empty energy level above it which it can move to which so it can gain the right amount of energy to vo- absorb that photon of light
1: which is why substances get that that characteristic fingerprint
2: Absorption pattern of of certain lights that they absorb and certain lights that they reflect. Yeah, and different substances have got different colours, which different energies they can absorb. So different colours they can absorb. So the colours which they reflect are different. So they look different colours. I hope that helps, Paul. Yeah, does
5: that sort of explain luminescence and fluorescence? Well, to a degree
2: then. um fluorescence is a, a related effect that's when um, you get a high energy photon something like ultraviolet which yeah. comes in and hits an atom or a group of atoms um, then that they can absorb that energy and then instead of releasing it all in one big lump it releases it in two or three smaller lumps uh, which okay. will be different colors lower um, lower frequencies which you can actually see so something can absorb ultraviolet light then emit blue light or green light and it looks like it's glowing Thanks Paul, great question and one other thing that people don't
1: often realise is that most of the different colours you see in nature of flowers they're actually all the same molecule, a molecule called anthocyanin and what the flower does is to make the petal more acidic or alkaline and what this does is to add or remove hydrogen from the molecule and this changes the way the electrons whiz around in the molecule and this changes the light wavelengths that they can soak up so the petals may all be basically different colours but it's all down to the same chemical colour anthocyanin. Now Keith is in Peterborough. Hello Keith.
5: Yes good evening Chris and good evening Dave. Um, My father who's now 90 has a very peculiar little uh, object. He's an ex electrician and likes gadgets and he's got this little object on his window facing the Sun. It consists of a glass tower almost the shape of the Eiffel Tower in the centre of which is a glass bulb about five centimetres diameter, with a pip on the top of it. Suspended in this bulb is a set of veins, four, in diamond shape, in pattern, and they attach to a glass rod, which seems to be sitting without touching two glass bearings. When the sun hits them, one side of each of these four blades seems to be coated with a material, And it spins rapidly.
1: Yes, it turns in a circle, and it's amazing to think this thing can turn just by sunlight shining on it. it yes because there's no motor in there it's just literally balanced on this tiny needle point and it spins around in the sun how does it do it well if you look closely at those veins at those panels you'll see that they have a a light side and a dark side so one side is soaking up the light the other is reflecting it and this is the best evidence there really is that light can be both a particle and a wave because light can impact a punch or a kick when it hits something and it can push it
2: along and this is literally the light pushing this thing along it's called a solar radiometer um, you, the Light does exert a pressure. You get light pressure, and people are talking about building solar sails so you can bake a spacecraft, um, send it up to space. Um, light will bounce off it, and you'll get a very tiny push by each photon of light bouncing into it and pushing it back. However, the Crookes radiometers, which are what you've got, work in a slightly different way. One, They've got two sides. One side's shiny, one side's black. And if the black, if the sunlight hits the black side, side it's going to heat up more than when it hits the shiny side. And there's a very, very low-pressure gas inside the radiometer and when the light on the very precious gas is near the hot side, then it's going to get hot, expand, and get pushed away, and therefore push the radiometer round a bit. But if it hits the shiny side, it's not going to be nearly as hot, so it doesn't get nearly as much kick. So the black side gets pushed back, and the shiny side gets pushed forward, and it spins around So there you Amazing have it. It's pretty cool, isn't it?
5: One final word, Chris. I was very fortunate to win your book about two years ago.
1: Oh, Fine, you vinyl. say fortunate. Never mind.
5: I've donated it <laughs> to one of the local schools. Oh, yeah. So if there is one going spare... No wonder I
1: educational standards are another falling. another copy. <laughs> I said no wonder educational standards are going down.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, great to have you on the show. I'll see what I can do for you, Keith. Chris, I'm very much obliged. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Oh. Norman in Hunstanton, Dave, has had a go at your kitchen science. Just remind us
2: what you want people to do this week. Um, Blow up a balloon, um, then, very simple, then get a kebab stick and try and push it through the balloon without causing the balloon to go pop. Uh,
1: Norman is suggesting using some candle wax in a quite intriguing way. So... uh, have you had a go at this? Get your balloon, see if you can get a kebab stick through it. If you can, tell us. Or if you have any science questions for us here on The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Dave Ansell, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com.
2: Now last week she explained that burning your food isn't possibly not the best of diet techniques, and now Diana Carroll joins us again with an electrifying question.
3: Hello. Uh, this week we're going to be skipping a beat with this heart-stopping question. Hi, I'm Becky from Bishop Stortford. And my question is, as lightning can strike in the same place twice, if you get struck by lightning and it stops your heart, and then they get struck by it again, would it restart your heart? So if a huge dose of electrical current brings you to a rest, can another strike of lightning get your heart going again?
7: Hello, my name is Jim Chandler. I'm a consultant anaesthetist. I work in the Princess Elizabeth Hospital in Guernsey. Firstly, the short answer is... Yes, it is possible that being struck twice by lightning would firstly stop your heart and then restart your heart. The answer is a bit more complicated than that, though. The heart cells maintain a voltage drop across them, which controls the inflow and outflow of ions, and these ions allow the heart to beat. If the heart's struck by lightning, that voltage drop is immediate and the heart will contract. Unfortunately, if the lightning strikes the heart in the wrong part of its relaxation, the cells will not contract together, but rather chaotically, and the heart will enter a rhythm called fibrillation. This doesn't allow it to pump, and for that reason, the pulse would stop and the heart would be said to be arrested. Now, if a second strike of lightning or an electric shock occurred at the same point when the heart was fibrillating, it would be possible that the heart cells would all contract together in a more ordered fashion, however there is a problem the heart could also be struck by lightning and instead of going into this fibrillating chaotic rhythm it could go into no rhythm at all it could quite simply not beat again that's called asystole it doesn't end there unfortunately our poor unfortunate victim also suffers elsewhere and it's likely that the chest would become relatively stiff and uh, the chest muscles would go into spasm these muscles take a lot longer to recover than heart muscles it would be very unlikely that your victim would be able to breathe again. And for that reason, although the heart may well restart, the victim may well die.
3: And that was Dr. Jim Chandler there, who was uh, kind enough to interrupt his heart bypass operation to give me that particular answer. His
1: own personal heart <laughs> bypass operation, presumably <laughs> yeah, not as the patient.
3: Uh, no, he was just supervising the the patient there. Anyway, uh, if the first strike doesn't stop your heart altogether, it could cause the heart cells to contract chaotically or fibrillate, where the heart can no longer do any blood pumping. Potentially a second strike of lightning could bring the heart cell contract, contractions even <laughs> back into sync or defibrillate them. Unfortunately it's likely this will also paralyze the muscles that enable breathing from turnip sock and graham D on our forum. There was a debate on the sheer uncommonness of such an occurrence. But back to an event seen rather more often. Hello, my name is Vivian. I'm calling from Adelaide in South Australia. And my question is, why is copper the metal, copper in colour Yeah, when in solution with copper sulfate it's blue and copper carbonate it's coloured and when you do a flame test it's actually green. I always thought the best colour for copper was ginger anyway but here's something else to daydream about. Hi, my name is Paula Ulvey. I'm from Johannesburg in South Africa. My question is about dreams. I was wondering why it's so difficult for us to remember our dreams when we wake up in the morning. So, if you know what makes copper compounds so colourful, and why we are so quick to forget some of the best dreams, then get in touch by emailing question of the week at thenakedscientist.com dot or by contributing to our forum of answers at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum.
1: Thank you very much, Diana. You remember your dreams?
3: Uh, not the best ones, no. <laughs> <laughs> only the rubbish ones.
1: OK, thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll, for this week's Question of the Week. Dave, lots of people are having a go at your question, uh, your um, kitchen science. Um, Terry Barnes is in Braintree, and he's doing interesting things with PVA glue, which uh, got me intrigued. It sounds plausible. Uh, and also some sellotape. And also Ro- Rolly Mandelbrot in Second Life, he's uh, doing it with duct tape, he says. Does that sound plausible? Again, sounds plausible. OK. And uh, Crystal Falcon is playing around with a bit of oil and a bit of slow twisting of the skewer. What are they all talking about? Well, Dave will be solving this week's kitchen science for you very, very shortly. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. And uh, I have to say thank you very much to my wife, Sarah, who bakes our cake every week for us. Cake of the week this week is chocolate slice, uh, biscuits and nice chocolate top. And we're enjoying that very, very much. And apparently she's also in Second Life listening to us. So hello and hello to everyone else in Second Life. Now, Dave, this kitchen science has got lots of people very excited. Um, Brian in Chelmsford says the trick was to do it with some sellotape stuck over the balloon. But let's find out what Dave in Thetford reckons. Hi, Dave. Hi. What, what was your solution to Dave's Kitchen Science this week?
5: Well, we used to do a trick um, back in sort of performing days, so to speak, where we had a, a very large needle which we attached to a length of wool, and we used to coat the whole thing in Vaseline and then pierce the balloon through the thick part at the top, pass the needle through the thick part at the bottom, and then sort of pull it through till it was on the wool, But then, because it was going to go down quite quickly, we used to hold it there for a couple of seconds and swing it up in there and pop it with the point of the needle.
2: Dave, meet Dave. (laughs) Hi, Dave. Hi. Yep, that is pretty much what I was going to suggest myself. Okay, um, so I'm going to start. So, what I asked everyone to do, in case anyone's forgotten, is take a balloon, blow it up. (laughs) Possibly a better (laughs) balloon than that one. It's good we've got another one. What is it about your kitchen science experiments? Whenever you come and do them here, they always go wrong. It, it, it adds to the live aspect <laughs> of the programme, I'm sure, Chris. OK, so we'll blow up another balloon here. And OK, so what I wanted to do was get a something sharp like a kebab stick and stick it through the balloon. Now, of course, if you put a kebab stick into the side of the balloon where you'd normally think of sticking it, then the balloon just explodes, as I've shown earlier. You tested that earlier, yeah. Well, I think we're going to have to test that again. I've done enough blowing up balloons in front of my face. Um, It just explodes. Now, the reason for that is rubber, when it stretches, uh, basically it starts off being quite stiff, then it stretches a lot, then it gets very stiff again. And so the rubber in the sides of the balloon basically is at its maximum stretch. It can't stretch any more. So, if you make a hole in it, then all the force which that, the rubber which you made the hole in, where the hole is, should be taking, then that's all concentrated just at the end, edges of the hole. So, all that force is concentrated in a very, very small place. So, that bit of rubber can't take it anymore. So, that breaks, which means there's even more force concentrated on the ends of the hole. And so, the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You get a tear running around the balloon, and the whole thing just goes
4: It's a goes bit like a ladder instead
1: of tights, isn't it? Where you get one defect, and then all the force goes through the edge of the defect, and then before you know it, you have this ladder.
2: Yeah, or if you're trying to tear a piece of paper, it's very difficult to break a piece of paper. If you haven't already just started the tear, in which case it's really easy. Or shattering a car windscreen. If you have a chip, in the, a stone chip or something,
1: which then creates a defect in the glass... Any force going across the glass, such as just the air hitting the glass at high speed, is enough to, to deform the glass and the stress is then going to be concentrated around the
2: irregular edges of the chip. That's right. So, basically, what you need to do um, to stop the balloon popping when you put it in there is somehow reinforce where you're going, so where you're putting the skewer in. There's various ways of doing this. Lots of people suggest putting some cellar tape over the top, which works nicely, or um, by the sounds of things, PVA glue, that sort of thing. You've just got to reinforce the edges to make it strong enough so that tear doesn't expand. However, there is a way of doing without any other tools other than the skewer. So, so
1: just to backtrack on that a second, so that's where this sellotape or the duct tape comes in?
2: Yeah, that's right. Or the now, PVA glue? That's right. Now, what Dave was saying was if you get a, a skewer, you don't even have to cover it with Vaseline if you're lucky and put it through the thick bit of the balloon near the neck like this... Twisted a bit it should go straight oh, in. it's
1: got that's amazing actually it
2: went straight through it's in he's yep. actually got a, a sharp skewer and i can see it inside the balloon and then if we come up to the other end the thick bit at the exact opposite where you blow it up with any luck it should come through <laughs> that is amazing he has got a balloon staying inflated impaled on a kebab stick yeah, and the reason is that the rubber at the, t- the, the top and the bottom of the balloon is, hasn't, ex- hasn't been stretched yet so there's got a lot of stretch left so therefore if you make a hole in it the extra force which is um, coming from the, the lack of rubber in the hole is the, the rubber at the edges of the hole can stretch a bit so that force is spread out around the edge of the hole so one bit of rubber isn't taking all the force so it can take it and so the crack doesn't propagate and you just put a skewer through it
1: and I have to acknowledge Crystal Falcon who tried this uh, in Second Life did say that twisting the skewer then pushes the latex polymer chains aside and that allows it to enter without tearing and as you push it through the thicker bit at the top um you, you actually get you've got more rubber to play with basically so word done to her she got basically got that spot on yeah cool okay thanks dave brilliant experiment too and lots of people had a go at it uh mike is in norwich hi mike hello chris uh, we've got about three minutes so what would you like to talk about
4: right. Right. Uh, When I let my grandson's healing balloon go after his birthday, we would let it just vanish into the sky. Could you tell me whether it would be affected by the very cold atmosphere if it reached, I mean, I don't know if it would reach five miles? Would it just pop or what would happen to it? Could you tell me,
1: please? Well, first of all, let me just say why it floats up in the air first, and then Dave can, can handle the hard bit. Um, yeah. The reason it floats up in the air is because helium is less is lighter than air. So in other words, it's a bit like a boat floating on the water. The balloon is pushing air out of the way that weighs more than the weight of the helium and the balloon together. So the colder, sorry, the heavier air comes in underneath the balloon and the balloon is pushed up in the air. So that's why the balloon goes up in the air, and this process will carry on going until the helium filled balloon reaches a point an altitude at which the air is the same density as the helium plus balloon effectively is so that's the maximum height that will be defined by how high it can actually go so now let's look at the other part of the question dave
2: yeah, um, as you get higher up, the air pressure reduces, so the balloon is going to try and expand. Now, depending on how heavy the balloon is, the balloon will either, and how quickly it's losing helium, because if you've ever blown up an all-rubber balloon with helium, they lose the helium quite quickly because it can get through the gaps in between the rubber polymers quite easily. So the balloon will keep on going upwards until either the so the so the balloon will expand and expand and expand until either it gets heavy enough, that it can't get any higher, or that the difference in pressure inside and outside it of it is enough that it will explode. I think if you just let go of a normal helium balloon, it will just escape and it will go up a few miles. I couldn't tell you exactly how. Well, hard.
1: Michel Fournier, who was the uh, retired army man who is going to do the jump from the edge of space a couple of weeks ago and his balloon took off without him unfortunately, it let, it let go his balloon would have got him to the edge of space wouldn't it because they use a material that can keep on expanding um, the further they, up it goes.
2: They either use a material which can expand a lot or they start, if you ever looked at the, sort of, these kind of balloons when they start off they're almost entirely empty, there's just a little tiny bit of helium in the top of them and as they go up there's lots of space for that helium to expand into so they can go up higher and higher and higher. I think the, the altitude record for an unmanned balloon is about 53 kilometres. Um, Um, the limit is really that's effectively space isn't it yeah it's about half the way to what's technically space um and basically the, the, the only limit is how light you can make the balloon fundamentally thanks dave
1: now next week, we're evolving because it's the 150th anniversary of Darwin sending his famous book, The Origin of Species, to the publishers, effectively. So we'll be recognising that with a look at Darwin's original writings, which are in fact held here in Cambridge. And we'll also be hearing about peppered moths and sheep in Scotland to find out what evolution is doing for them. So please send any questions you have on the science of evolution or ecology or any general science questions and just hellos to chris at scientistcom My thanks must go this week to our production team who are superb. That's Ben Valley. Mirosynthillingham, Petro Minch, and Diana O'Carroll. I'm Chris Smith. Have a fantastic week and see you next time. Goodbye.
0: The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Welcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at NakedScientists.com.